Hi, I'm Laura Brady, CEO of Concierge Auctions. And hi, I'm Chad Roffers, Chairman of Concierge Auctions. And this is Block Talk. And we're here today with David Friedman. David is the co-founder of Wealth Quotient. He also is the original co-founder and president of WealthX. So David, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. And welcome everyone to Block Talk. So Block Talk is a web and podcast series covering all things luxury real estate from the front lines of the industry, both on and off the auction block. And before we get into today's topic, I wanted to lay a little bit of foundation and share with you just a little bit about us if you're not familiar with Concierge prior to today. We were founded in 2008. Our company has now 10, 11 years of experience under our belt as a solution in the buying and selling of high-end real estate. And what we do best is match sellers of -of one-of-a-kind properties, and they're representing real estate agents, with the most capable buyers on the planet, giving control, predictability, and liquidity to to high-end real estate on the seller's timeline. We sold over $2.5 in sales, spanning 29 countries and 40 U.S. states. And specifically, what we're going to talk about a little bit today, and with David's background and expertise, is the growth of our database, the potential of reaching luxury clients, and how important a database can be in ongoing pursuits. Thus far in our company, we have amassed a database of over 640,000 contacts. We have almost 100,000 subscribers that weekly receive ongoing communication with us. And we have 10,000 private clients that have transacted with us, including 275 documented billionaires that we've worked with in the past. So going to talk a little bit about how we can continue to deepen that expertise with David's assistance, as others who are here on the line can do as well, and learn from the ability to interact with different high-end clients. So Chad, a little bit about our interaction with the brokerage community might be some good foundation too. Absolutely. And while we've always been a very progressive and innovative company and emphasize we have a fully digital platform, something that we were invested in a decade ago, but the ability to connect buyers and sellers anywhere in the world in a transparent digital way. And that starts at the very beginning with how we market properties and onboard them to our platform and all the way through a successful auction and closing. So very important and certainly timely in the world we're living in today. One thing that is a true core value of ours and something that we've never deviated from is we believe that we get the best results by working in conjunction with the brokerage community rather than in competition with. As Laura mentioned, billions of dollars of closed transactions, and we've never conducted a sale without partnering with a local listing broker partner and making sure also that the other agents in the market or globally, quite frankly, can also participate and bring buyers to the table. This is something that's not a cost to agents. What we've learned through the years is that agents who add our platform to their toolkit see a significant increase in earnings opportunity on an annual basis. They're viewed in the community with by their clients as experts and innovators, quite frankly, become a resource for other agents in the market as well. And we've enjoyed you know, longstanding partnerships with marquee brands like Southern these international realty, leverage global partners, luxury portfolio, who's who in luxury real estate, Berkshire Hathaway Home Services affiliates, Engels and Volkers, 
Knight Frank in Europe. So, you know, we really walk the talk in terms of those partnerships and alliances. In this episode, we're going to be diving deep into the paradoxes of the new luxury consumer. And today's new luxury consumers are changing the way we think about wealth. As the amount of millionaires and, of course, billionaires continues to grow, the luxury market has more power than it ever has before. And these new wealthy consumers, they view the responsibility of money in a new way and much about the thinking, um, how the wealthy behave is changing. So specifically, we're going to take a look at Number one, new luxury consumer behaviors, values, and wealth investments. David is going to give a lot of insight as we operate in the luxury real estate sales and purchase markets. David works in all different markets of luxury clientele. So talking about how different markets are acting right now. We're also going to be talking about mistakes to avoid and best practices for building and maintaining a pipeline of luxury clients, how to acquire a new luxury client leveraging referrals. And specific to today, some post-COVID predictions and effects on luxury consumers that we're seeing kind of already take shape and how we think that markets, pricing and demand is going to start, you know, acting as we continue through the days of figuring out the new normal of what it's going to be like on the other side of what we're going through right now. So lastly, actionable tips that we can start making right now to not only survive, but also thrive during and post the pandemic. Today's guest, David Friedman, he is the co-founder of Wealth Quotient and was co-founder and president of WealthX, which we have had a lot of involvement with both WealthX and also getting to know David's new company, Wealth Quotient. Before we get started, I wanted to ask you a little bit about why you formed Wealth Quotient after the learnings that you had from building WealthX. And it's such a pleasure to be with you guys. I've known Chad and Laura for a long time, going back to my WealthX days. And Wealth Quotient is not some new business plan that I kind of woke up after WealthX and said, hey, this is something I want to create. It really is the culmination of over 10, almost a decade of experience of working with the top global luxury brands that you all know, financial services, multifamily offices, private banks, nonprofits and higher ed, you know, the Ivy League schools. And all kind of, you know, I was really fortunate at WealthX to have this unique position where I kind of sat on a perch and I was able to look across all these industries, all trying to engage the ultra affluent and the billionaires. And, and while they have different things they're trying to do, whether it's invest, get them to invest, get them to give at the tip of the pipeline and really building chemistry and trust and accessing them, they were all making the same mistakes. And we're going to get to this a little later. And so... When I, you know, we were very fortunate at WealthX to sell to a large private equity fund in New York who bought it a couple of years ago. They have actually resold it now to Euro Money in London. And when I was leaving, um, I was working for some family offices doing some consulting. But uh, my co-founder at Wealth Quotient, who was head of sales for WealthX, called me and said, David, there are a few things, uh, you know, every single one of our clients at WealthX said, we love the data. And data is amazing. But what do we do with it? And do you have training? Since referrals are really one of the key ways to acquire a new ultra high net worth client. How do you scale that in a more systematic, proactive way? It was a question everyone was asking. And so we formed Wealth Quotient to tackle that question, take all the experience that we had working with these top brands and distill it down into a methodology, which is really the antidote to those mistakes. And we're going to talk about that later. But Wealth Quotient, I call it a prospect development platform because it's really a combination of learning, 
online courses, coaching, and there is a data element as well. Wealth Quotient, we work with many of the same top luxury brands that you would know, but the exciting part, and we're going to talk about this later as well, which is we've taken all that learning that we have and we've distilled it down into some really crisp online courses uh, that we're now offering for someone who is a broker who may have been around or an agent that's been around for many, many years and has a large book of business, or if you're just starting out. And part of this, again, was really driven by this notion of, I began to witness over this last several years, uh, what I call data fatigue, which is everyone was talking about data, but it was very hard for people to make it actionable. And so my new kind of mantra has been data, unless you have data without action is a, is a distraction for people. And so data is absolutely important. I'm passionate about it. I created WealthX, but how can you provide and create a strategic context to action it? That's really what Wealth Quotient is all about. Let's start with our first discussion topic, the new luxury consumer, behaviors, values, wealth investments. What's your feel, David, for how these elements have been changing through the past few years? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's cliche, but the rich are getting richer, right? <laughs> and the uh, and the WealthX data actually shows that, right? There's more billionaires than ever before. Now, some of that's because there wasn't accurate data and we didn't know it, but they're continuing to do it. So there's a few fascinating trends. Some are paradoxical, right? Uh, or they they seem like they're contradictory, right? Like for example, one we all know, which is you have a billionaire that will haggle with you over $10,000 fee that they show on something, right? So it seems contradictory, but it's really not. And so one of the things I talk about is sensitivity to the optics that are happening. Let's take someone, for example, who has a commercial trucking business who is you know worth $200 million or $100 million. Think about self-driving and what's the impact that's going to happen to that person's business over the next two or three years. A large part of their employees are going to be replaced by self-driving. And that means they're going to be more efficient. They're going to have more profit. But it also means they're going to have this sensitivity. I talk a lot about the optics of wealth. And I really believe that we saw that rising. We saw this acute awareness where if your business is being fundamentally kind of restructured, um, you're not going to drive in after you've let two thirds of your employees go. You're not going to drive in with a new luxury car. You know, maybe it's a Mercedes and not a Maserati. And so I think there's a, a, a hypersensitivity around optics, around luxury and different in buying things. So then let's say that the pandemic that we're now in for the last few months, I only see that making it even more acute. This sensitivity to optics now is going to become even more raw for this market. Now, does it mean they don't have money? That's not it. It's not that they don't have money. They do. The other big trend that I've seen, and this has started 10 years ago, but now it's really taking on momentum. And it's really for the larger family offices. They have become disenfranchised, if you will, or disgruntled with the traditional banking systems and the private equity funds and being an L, what we call an LP in a fund. They're all going direct. And this is the biggest trend that's it's always been there. But I'd say over the last 10 years, some of the bigger families have done it. And now even the smaller families, everyone wants to go direct. They don't want to be an LP in a fund. They don't want to be in other people's funds where they're paying fees. They're going direct. And so we're going to see, a, we're, you know, we, this might be a hiccup in that. But I, I suspect that what's really going to happen over the next year or two, these family offices have so much dry powder. They have so much cash. Because they were getting out of they were getting out of equities, uh, you know, the last five years. They've got they're sit, they've been sitting on the, the sidelines, and we all know because of what's happening in the market right now. There's going to be some unbelievable, tremendous values in terms of infrastructure assets and so forth. Even think about oil in Texas, right, and buying production. 
I see this accelerating the kind of climate around that. We work with a lot of private jet companies, and we thought that now there would be a huge pause, but we've seen all of them pressing in, pressing the gas pedal, frankly. Now, they also have a different environment and context because maybe you are debating between net jets and buying a phenome from Embraer. And now, though, the idea of flying private and having your only your family on a plane actually has a different context. So we've been surprised to see in the private aviation field an acceleration in terms of their pipeline aggressively applying our principles and we've worked with a lot of them. So those are, I think, some really trends that were happening and trends that are going to kind of the implications, if you will, from coronavirus. Thanks, David. Very insightful. And we definitely have experienced a lot of those elements that you spoke of with our clients, too. I know that on the line today, we have both real estate agents that represent luxury clients, clients who we have transacted with before, as well as prospective clients. It's interesting that when you talk about not being as flashy or not being, you know, change, I guess, in, in perspective of how money spent and how it's shown to the public. One thing that we have dealt with in our business is, you know, auctions of real estate historically can have a negative connotation to some people. We're showing that auctions of high-end real estate is really more akin to auctions of fine art and antiquities than it is of other real estate auctions that are known, you know, on the lower end of price points. But really, for us, our sellers, you know, decide to sell through auction as a smart business decision, aside from what the optics may or may not be. And in fact, today, you know, we we very rarely have that question anymore, like we did 10 years ago of my neighbors think if I if I do this, you know, this is a smart decision that they're making. The other thing that's interesting is that when I look back at when we really broke into the billionaire class of sellers and buyers, and particularly buyers. It's when we launched an enhanced version of our electronic bidding and where people could bid. And we know this about this caliber person. They're going to buy these properties in an LLC that is controlled by, you know, on paper. They don't want scrutiny and they don't want press. They want low key. And so when we introduced mobile bidding, right around that time is when our, our interactions with the billionaires of the world really surged. And it's really the convenience of it, the privacy of it. And also to your point around the $10,000, the transparency of knowing, okay, I'm going to bid 40 million on this property, but it's $100,000 more than somebody else was, but I'm not spending 5 million or 10 million more than I should. You know, we see it kind of in the field what you're describing all the time. That is a, a great point about the auction process because so my very first startup in late 90s in Silicon Valley was in the online auction space for cars. And so one of the value propositions was the problem always was, am I paying too much? People, and it, it, it doesn't matter what the price point is, people always have this nagging suspicion afterwards, did I pay too much? And you're right. That was one of the things I argued on the online auction side, for cars at least, was buyers knew they, that, that transparency gave them confidence. It was an ability to check that box. They didn't walk away saying, I wonder if I paid too much, right? Because it was a, that process. So I think that's a, a great value proposition to the process that, that you guys have. Yeah, that's very interesting. And most so in markets where value is uncertain, right? Which we'll talk about a little bit that is likely where, well, it's where, where this market is right now in most places anyway. We just don't know what values are today and what they'll be six months and a year from now. What's interesting about that is 
people always say, well, this house is worth that or, or this. It's worth what someone will pay it, right? You know, I live in Sac Harbor. I'm here in Sac Harbor in the Hamptons. It is probably the most variant within a half mile segment in the world in the sense of around here, the houses are anywhere from one and a half to three, four. Down the road, there's one that was listed for 25 million, right? In the short span of less than half a mile. And if you get over to the water, there can be 50. This is quarter, half mile. From a data perspective, to be able to try to analyze that is very challenging. That auction process, it's almost accelerated capitalism in its purest form, right? Which segues into our next topic of actually building a pipeline then of new luxury clients, you know, mistakes and best practices. I mean, you built one of, you know, the best luxury databases of clients, if not the best, right, in the entire world, actually the best. (laughs) We have spent 11 years amassing real estate specific clients that transact in the luxury realm and their representatives. So let's talk about biggest mistakes, best practices. What are your top ones? You know, again, this is not me just waking up um, and thinking about this, right? This was over thousands of conversations over 10 years of talking with a lot of top leaders across different brands and also WealthX, right? We would circle back around and it was time for us to, to have a discussion about, you know, another year. And I would sit down and people would always say, David, the data is absolutely fantastic, but how do I get to this person? That question used to dog me all the time. And so at WealthQuestion, we think about there's always, there's two things, access and unlocking chemistry and trust, right? The access is is hard. The unlocking chemistry, trust, they both are, right? So it's exactly what you're saying. Once you get there, being able to offer. So I was dumbfounded so often because I would sit down with I, literally uh, the head of the private bank at one of the top banks. And I would say to him, you know, I, you know, and I got to the point where I would sit down and I'd say, listen, referrals are how you grow. You know, yes, you should be doing marketing and mind share out there. And I believe in brand equity, um, but, but guerrilla warfare from a sales professional's perspective, you know, your your top people are if you sit down with them 90 percent of the new clients come ref, from referrals now it's an existing client or what's called a center of influence for them will be an accountant attorney same with uh real estate agents and and they everyone would shake their head the coo the head and it'd be a room you know six or seven people and then i would say do you have so so do you have a strategy or a sales some type of sales strategy for how to accelerate referrals i can tell you that every single one of them said we, we don't they just did and so what I, that was the first big mistake we saw was people recognize referrals are how they grow their business. Everyone knows that, but people just didn't have a strategy or a plan. And but I understand why. I mean, when you ask that question, how do you scale referrals? That's not an easy question to answer. That was the first mistake. And so, in the absence of a plan, most organizations did what we call, and they default to a position, and we call this it's a pathology. We call it an outward in approach, and that's typically an outward in approach is buying a rich list or even WealthX, you know, getting the richest people in Houston, whatever it is, uh, the Forbes list and or a liquidity list and basically saying, OK, here's a sales manager takes that list, gives it to their sales professionals and says, go get them. Because I have these conversations with hundreds of agents and sales professionals. Right. And they say the same thing. They're like, I just got this list from the richest people in Denver. My sales manager said, go get them. And the question is always, well, how do I get to them? What's interesting in at Wealth Quotient, where we come to, if you're asking the question, how do I get to them? What it means is not only it's not only is it the wrong question, it means that underneath that you started out in the wrong place. You've started out with what we call an outward in approach. Right. And so that was the second big mistake that I saw. And then the third big mistake that I saw was people I would sit down and say, no, David, we're tracking our our agents ask for referrals. Our sales professionals ask for referrals. Our fundraisers ask for referrals. They're asking every time they have a meeting, every time they review a portfolio, every time there's a closing, whatever it is, they're asking for a referral. 
but they weren't getting the introductions. And so I really dug into that. I did my own kind of informal survey when I was at WealthX of all of our clients. And I came to find that pretty much 99 out of 100 times, I call it the golf game beer formula. We had a golf game, review the portfolio, have a Chimay beer at the golf club. And then kind of at the very end, you know, after we, everything's been good and we beat the S&P or we at least perform like the S&P, if you're a financial advisor, for example, or you're enjoying your home and just following up, whatever, fill in the, the industry. It doesn't matter. And then you get the, hey, um, do you know anybody that, and then just fill in the blank, life insurance, yachts, planes, whatever it is. I would always get the same response, which is from the, the people I talk to, occasionally someone would say, yeah, let me, I've got somebody, let me send them on. But typically the response was, let me think about it and get back to you. And this is the third pathology in prospecting for the ultra wealth. When you ask that open in a generic referral, you're forcing that person to do your job of figuring out who your prospects are. Now, some people are psychologically afraid to do that because they feel like it's pushing too much. But the reality is the probability and the data shows people would rather respond to something specific than have to go away and think about it. And then you've got to email afterwards and follow up and say, hey, did you think about anybody? And then the second week, should I do it again? And then third by the third week, you're like, ah, you know, I'll, I'll forget. Right. And so if nothing else, wealth quotient at the very core is this core principle that will unlock everything, which is if you're going to ask for a referral, then do do it, ask for a specific referral in an introduction. But to do that, you need to have done a little research and, and figured out who you want to get to. Right. We have a great story. We have a, a very large nonprofit client in D.C. And one of their number one fundraiser, who's amazing, he's 70 years old, but he is he, he raises more money than anyone else in the organization. And he's gone through our training. He says, if I had this 20 years ago, my life would be different. But we were doing training for them and we put up on the board one of his hubs. We call him a hub, right? They're a referral source. And this is part of if you guys do the course we're offering for everyone, we walk you through how to pick the right referral source. But he had picked a referral source that we knew. But we put this person up on the, the PowerPoint screen as part of the training. And he said, listen. He said, David, you know, I, I'm all in on what you guys are doing. This is exactly right. I believe in it, but I'm sorry because you wasted your time with that person. He and I barbecue every week. He sends me referrals all the time. He said, I'm really sorry that you guys spent that time and invested it. And the next slide literally was a guy worth 600 million that was on a board with this guy. And he said, who is that? And we said, they're on the board together. And he said, I've been trying to get to that guy for four years. You mean they're, they're on the same board? They're connected? We said yes. And literally underneath the table, he texted his client. He had set up a meeting the next week with that guy that he had been trying to get to for four years. And so that outward in approach consumes so much time and energy. One of the things that Wealth Quotient we're trying to help people do is migrate their mindset to always inward out. If you're asking, how do I get to the prospect? It's the wrong question. And you're going to waste an enormous amount of time when your existing relationships are connected to more than you can imagine. And I mean, even just listening to you guys, Laura, how many billionaires you guys have, that group is probably already connected to every other billionaire in the world. And so having that skill set of just thinking that way, right, especially if you're a new agent or if you're a seasoned manager and you're onboarding your agents, if, can you imagine if the very first thing from a training perspective you gave them was an inward out approach and their whole career was based on that? Every meeting, client meeting they went to, they were thinking that way when they showed up. I'm not going to leave unless I ask for a specific referral. The trajectory would be so different, right? So anyway, I get, I apologize. Yeah. I get so passionate about this. Your insight is just so valuable. One thing that we talk about that parallels this in the marketing world is 
permissive marketing versus interruptive marketing, right? Interruptive marketing being advertisements, you know, anywhere that you're just trying to get in front of the eyeballs that you think you should be in front of, but you're, you know, making that interruption as opposed to developing relationships, right? Building trust and getting permission from someone who wants your service and who can be valued by your service. You know, we're here not just to be pushing a service, but rather to be offering it because it's a value to someone. And the assumption behind that, which our methodology, which we're going to get to, our five steps, the whole assumption and, and philosophy, or you could even say the theology underneath it is try to serve someone. When you get a referral, you may meet with a person, they may not be the right fit for you. But if you're trying to serve people, because I believe that everyone who's on this webinar wants to serve their clients well, that's a check, but that's a checkbox. That's table stakes, right? But if you are, then there's an opportunity to monetize that, right? So it's about really serving people and, and trying to do the best that for them, right? And now, is it Machiavellian to say that by doing that, you're going to get the more clients through the referrals and being proactive? No, I, th I think it's they, they go together. I mean, people have to grow their businesses. They need to grow. They need new clients. I mean, it's part mm -hmm. of life. Right? Post-COVID predictions and effects. Chad has you know been in tons of discussions with our clients about this lately. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, it's interesting in that we've been active throughout the last two months of this in all over the place. I mean, Thailand, California, New York, Spain, Italy, Florida, Texas. I mean, but, you know, our thesis is, I mean, it's interesting you talk about the dry powder that's out there. There's no question that's there. There's a segment of the world, you know, they wait for times like this to, you know, make their moves. I always say it's like a third of the population kind of fall into that category. And so we don't think that it's the end of the world as it relates to connecting sellers and buyers of high-end properties. We do think there's going to be a rotation in who those buyers and sellers are. The second thing is that, you know, when we look back at, certainly this is a different type of crisis from 08, 09, but nonetheless, it's a shock the same. And our worldview is in the long, long term, things are going to be fine. And in the short term, the next 60 days to 180 days, if you're a seller and you're willing or you want liquidity or you want to trade up or you know trade down or whatever you want to do, now's the time to do it. There's going to be some pent up demand from people who've just been cooped up in their apartments or wherever they've been. But I also think that we'd all be naive to not think there's going to be you know, long-term damage done by this. And there are going to be some jobs and some businesses that don't recover the way that we all want them to. And I think there's going to be a wave of people rather than being opportunistic sellers or market sellers, but forced sellers. And I think that I don't see a scenario where that's not going to happen. And so looking back to 08, 09, you know, we were still getting prices for assets in eight and nine that we didn't see again in the world till 2014, 15, 16. That's a big one trend we're seeing. The other trend I think is a positive one. We had a lot of calls from sellers in affluent suburban communities. Really, that type of asset class has been out of vogue. People have wanted urban, low maintenance, smaller, et cetera. And I think one of our advisory board members says, you know, space is the new luxury. I think and I don't get that exactly right, but that's the gist of it. You know, I think all of us right now recognize that having a place that you can shelter in place and have a good quality of life is important. I think that's the other thing that we're going to see, both in terms of some of these suburban markets that have been rough going, and then, you know, the primo destination spots in the world. We just sold a property in Malibu 
few weeks ago, the Aspens of the world, where people are figuring out like we are right now that you can run a business without having to show up at the office every single day. And we also think that that is going to be a trend where people are going to be in the you, you only live once mindset. And if I can run my business from Aspen instead of not picking anything, but I'm from the Midwest, so from Milwaukee, it's, it's certainly going to be tempting. David, any post-COVID predictions from your point of view? Yeah, let me just echo what Chad said. I think we're going to see this fascinating trend of the decoupling of the role of place with business. Prior, those things were intertwined, right? Um, where, do, where do I live? It needs to be close to business, or at least from an airport perspective, is it close? There was kind of the front end, I feel, uh, early adopters who said, I don't care. You know, I'm going to buy a place down in Asheville in the mountains, even though I got to travel a lot. I feel like there's been a wave of folks who have said, I'm not going to worry about location. I'm going to go where I think it's good. I think we're going to see a much larger segment of that now pivot and say, why am I traveling to do a sales meeting? Even with our own business, right? I mean, literally the week that things kind of started to deteriorate, we were supposed to fly down and meet with a private jet company in, um, in North Carolina. And my co-founder actually, interestingly enough, thinks we're going to see a backlash and that people have been so wound up. They're going to they're going to travel for any if any meeting. Like if, if someone just emailed you and says, you know, so and that may be true. We may get a little surge back. But I think there's been a fundamental structural shift on sales. I remember when the guy from WebEx came into my office in Silicon Valley, probably in 1999 and tried to give it to us for free. It just literally launched it, right? And we believe that this is the future. Everyone did, but no one was acting that way. We're still buying plane tickets and, and flying. This has been basically forced this fundamental structural shift. And so I think because of that shift in the wake of that shift, place is now going to be decoupled and people are going to, as they make decisions, they're going to say, what's the best? And schools are always the primary driver for most folks, right? Here in SAG, we have uh, an amazing public school. People buy houses in SAG just so they can go there. Schools were always one of the attracting talent schools because parents want their kids to be in the, the great schools, right? So it was always one of the driving factors. And so it would be interesting to see the migration patterns around great schools, public in the U.S. over the next two years, because I think people now will say I can work from wherever. It's time to move to where that public school is that we always talked about or whatever it is, right? They do that anyway. So I think those things will be decoupled more than we've seen before. So then riffing on that, how do we all and everyone who's on this call, you know, make decisions to not only survive, but thrive um, steps that we can start taking now during the pandemic to be prepared? I mean, first is being on webinars like this and consuming information. I think I actually saw a friend post on social media, one of the questions like, are you consuming more information today than you did months ago? And 100% yes, of course, people are taking advantage of that today. But what else can we be doing? You know, how can you not just survive right now, but actually thrive, right? And these are things actually we've been witnessing from our clients on our calls in terms of their you know, we, we really thought that most of our clients would push, especially our luxury clients, would push the pause button right now. Financial services, they have a different reason now to circle with their top clients. And one of the primary reasons is portfolio volatility right now. The volatility in the market is going crazy. Anyone who's a financial advisor is circling with their top clients to have discussions. On our higher ed nonprofit side, their clients, they have really close relationships with their top donors. So they're circling with them and just checking in. As a real estate agent, as long as you have some clients that are really close to, I'm assuming most of you might be circling back around and say, hey, I'm just checking in. How are things going? What we're seeing from some of our clients is they're using that as an opportunity and it has to be positioned the right way. 
but they're using it as an opportunity to say, and this isn't for everybody, and I understand that, but what they're doing are, is it, they're using this as an opportunity to say, you know, this is a hard situation, et cetera, et cetera. And they're checking in they're, and they're genuinely authentically doing that. But at the end of the conversation, they're saying, listen, you know, over the next several months, we're going to come out of this and we're going to be in growth mode because we're going to need to kind of fire on all cylinders. And uh, this is a kind of the sample narrative we're hearing, you know, referrals are how we get to the, our top donors or top clients. And, you know, most likely if you're all right with it, I'd love to circle back around with you. Um, and have a discussion on some relationships I'm trying to engage and if maybe you could make an introduction to them. And that's just one, one sample way of positioning it. Everyone has to make it authentic for themselves and their their relationships. But they are doing that and they're using this time where they typically, a lot of these people, they couldn't get hold of them, but now people are willing to do a Zoom. They're willing to have a conversation. They're at home. It's time for on the upper spectrum in terms of net worth, the ability to engage and actually do a Zoom because everyone's doing it. And they have the time. I always say that mind share leads to market share, which leads to wallet share, right? And so having that direct mind share opportunity, it's a unique time right now to engage and circle with your top clients. Now, I'm not saying you need to ask for that referral right now, although some of our clients are. They're getting on and saying, they're saying, I know you're on this board. When we come out of this, we'd really like an introduction. But that's because they have a very close relationship, what we call their hub or their key client. But even just thinking that way as you're re-engaging your clients and think, just having that thought process, I think mm -hmm. is hugely valuable. And as you start to think about positioning that conversation and positioning yourself to engage coming out of that. And so I think that's, a very simple way. Prior to Corona, the pandemic, one of the tips that we used to tell uh, real estate agents is a very similar narrative, but at the closing, the client is never happiest at the point of where they actually, you haven't even invested it yet. It's just the money is transferred, right? <laughs> uh, same with the house closing uh, with an agent. At that moment, asking permission to come back and circle to get a referral and something that everyone and anyone can do. Even if you have a psychological fear of asking for a specific referral or you feel like it's too aggressive, whatever it is, most people would be willing to get permission to come back at another time. And so I think that's a really great thing to consider. I think it's a best practice. The other best practice that's really interesting is you may or may not have heard of what's called NPS, Net Promoter Score. It was developed by Bain Consulting and the top companies in the world use it to measure how they're doing with their clients. The theory and thesis behind it is that customer satisfaction surveys tell you nothing except for one question. There's one question that boils everything down uh, in an NPS survey that First Republic, all the top brands in the world, they do it. And it's, would you refer my business? And so I've done some coaching with some of the top brokers across different brands and helping them create a miniature version of a survey that does that. So that after a closing, they send a link, they use Google Forms, it's free. One of the questions is, would you refer my business? That gives you the real insight. The whole point of the value of that NPS is that illuminates for sure what, what they really think of you. They could do a five on, was my service good? Would they refer you, right? I mean, literally last year, JP Morgan and, and Deutsche Bank both launched NPS initiatives. So this is something that the biggest companies in the world are doing for their bankers. Now, unfortunately, they're doing it the wrong way because they, once someone says, I would refer them, they're giving that list to a banker. And then the banker is going to their client and saying, hey, thank you for saying you refer. And then they're making the, the, the mistake that I talk about, which is who can you refer, right? And unfortunately, that puts too much pressure on our clients. We don't want them to have that pressure. So anyway, so those are, I think, a few really concrete, tactical best practices that you can do after the pandemic and during the pandemic.
David, I'd love for you to tell the group a little bit more about Wealth Quotient, and then we can get into some of the questions. We'll be sure to answer the questions that we have in here right now, and then can stay on if there are more. And I'm going to do this very quickly because I really prefer to get to the questions where people are engaging. I mentioned the three biggest kind of pathologies for prospecting. As the antidote to those, we built a five-step methodology, which is at the core of how we work with large global enterprises, but it's what we bottled and put in our online university as well. And I'm just going to quickly walk you through. These are things that top performers do intuitively or ad hoc. We've just created a framework to help you scale it and do it more systematic and a toolkit to support that. So the first one is, who are my top referral sources? And we walk through, and this is part of the offering we're giving people is the ability to access this content. We walk you through how to pick them using the specific criteria that we have. Do they like you? Are they willing to help you? And are they social? By social, though, we mean a public footprint. They need to be on boards because we want to use public data for that, right? After we filter our book of business and we pick these key ambassadors, we pick these key clients who are going to be our hubs, we then need to go do some research and map the social graph around them and figure out who prospects are, people that we'd like to engage and build relationships with. This is very labor intensive and hard, I would say though. And so we actually have a research team where our clients through our online university can submit a name and then we map out everybody they know for you and and basically build a prospect list for you. Once you've done that, you go through that, you select the people you wanna get to through your clients and then it's all about how do I ask for that introduction? So step three is walking through a a really structured way of what am I going to say? How am I going to say it? What's the social capital I have with the person? How is their relationship? Very, very structured way. Not hard, though. You just need to walk through the process. But by the end, you have a miniature strategic plan on how to get engage your hub or your client to, to ask for that specific referral request. Coming out of that, they're going to curate that. They're going to tell you, I don't know that person. This person's up. I don't think you should meet them, but this person's great or someone else you should meet. Uh, And now you're going to go gather information. In some ways, I call this in step four, I call the poor man's version of WealthX because we're basically teaching you how to build a profile. It's nothing like WealthX. You know, nothing can come close to that unless you had 150 researchers. But it's teaching you how to go build your miniature version of a profile but really focusing on their passions, hobbies, and interests. And then step five is what we call be bespoke. And and really the core of that tool and that process of that step is culminating in asking five great questions that have nothing to do with you, your brand, platform, offering, service, what it costs. It's all about them. It's all about getting them to talk by asking. It's about being an active listener and serving them because psychologically asking great questions always unlocks chemistry and trust. We all know it. We all know it. But we do the challenges that we all and I'm a sales professional, too. We do. I call it show up and throw up. We we get passionate about what we're doing. And so this is forcing in that very first meeting. This is forcing uh, sales professionals to focus. And I cannot tell you how many times I've been. Someone's been on the way to a meeting with a billionaire or someone. And I'd say, OK, what are you going to say? And they say they're passionate about this, but we have this. And so I'm going to talk about how we're doing. And I said, what are the five questions that have nothing to do with you? And they're like, oh, pull the reins, right? Do you have to earn the right to be heard? You've gotten access through a referral. So you've been positioned the right way. Now, how can you accelerate chemistry and trust? And questions is so simple, right? This is, you know, old school Dale Carnegie, right? So that's our five steps that we teach. And we do this for large global companies. But again, we bottled this in our online university for individuals so they could have access to that same best practices and learning. Just to, to stimulate people's imagination, Albert Steinberg is a fictitious name, but it is a real individual in Manhattan. So imagine this is your client. This And this is real data. This one person is connected to 99 people, of which there's 14 billionaires 
61 high net worth and then 18 ultra affluent, which is ultra affluent is 30 million and up. High net worth is anything come below that to millionaire, right? Think about this. This is just one client um, that was mapped, right? And so we uh, the term I've come up with, I call it the wealth graph. It's the financial segmentation of the social graph of an individual. And then it's geographically distributed all over. So if you think about different people in different places and where they are, right? And so this person had a robust one. Those five steps are our antidote to those three problems in a structured way and being able to leverage that. In that graphic, I hopefully, hopefully that stimulates your imagination to think about you probably are directly connected through your clients to more individuals and prospects than you could ever from a pipeline perspective process. There's never a reason to do that outward in approach versus inward out, right? And especially when you have a partner like Concierge Auctions who has a tool where they're already doing that. I mean, these things work in tandem together, right? It's both, it's both and. And I think it's very powerful to leverage both of those, right? We've just created a new kind of program. Where I'm calling it the one day sales detox because it's basically one day of content. You'll have 30 days of access to it. But if you were interested in kind of figuring out and deconstructing your mindset around the outward in approach and looking at inward out, and then also walking through a course where we help you filter and figure out who are your top referral sources. And then we're offering kind of a little miniature strategy session as well. Um, typically, we charge for this, but we wanted because we're launching it next week and because I was doing it with Chad and Laura, we thought we would give you guys special access. So if you want to go to this URL and then we'll also send out an email, Laura's going to send out an email afterwards. But if you go sign up for this, when we launch this next week, we'll give you the ability to access the content for for free. And we think it's very helpful because one of the things we've realized is unless you change your mindset around these things, you're just going to keep doing the same thing over and over again. And to change your behavior, you have to change the mindset. So we're excited to offer this It's a new program. We're going to give you access to what we call the Ultra High Net Worth Bootcamp, which is their mindset. How do they think? And then pipeline, this pipeline course, we're going to help you figure out who your top referral sources are. The other thing is we built, you know, in all my experience, and I know a lot about CRM and, and other software tools. No one's built what I, a, a way to measure or track success around referrals. And so we've built a special KPI dashboard that's a software component to this. There's going to be a little diagnostic survey. And, and assuming you go through that and do it, then we will spend the time assessing that for you and helping you think about your strategy. Uh, and again, because this is the first time we've kind of launched this and it's new for us, we're doing it for free. We'd love to love to test this with anyone on this call because I know we have some really interesting folks. Many of us are probably going through detox right now on other things. Maybe maybe you stopped drinking for a while. I did. <laughs> or but what? why not add among the other detox that we're doing all doing right now at home? Your sales detox. Right. So anyway, thank you. <laughs> Perfect. Thanks, David. Our next up episodes that we're going to be doing for Block Talk are on May 1st. We're going to be talking about five myths of real estate auctions specifically. And then on May 6th, we're going to have our first auction one on 101 educational course on Block Talk. We're actually going to be doing these maybe every other week for the next few months, but the first one's on May 6th. And you can get preferred agent certification to be a preferred concierge auctions agent as well. So take a look at Block Talk now for our total lineup of episodes coming up. And let's get into some of the questions here. I appreciate the need to have a pipeline of wealthy buyers and their need to make sure they don't pay too much. But what if you're a seller of a luxury property and you don't want to have a lot of bidders who are all bottom feeders wanting to steal your property? How do you as a seller trust that that's not going to happen? 
Great question. Always focus on the math and the metrics. So let's just pretend you're in Dallas and it's a $10 million listed property. What do we want to accomplish over the period of time for when we take on that assignment up through the auction date and then a successful closing. So we want to accomplish three things. One is we want to generate between 300 and 600 buyer inquiries. We want to generate somewhere in the neighborhood of plus or minus 25, you know, what I would characterize as deep dives. And those could be qualified in-person showings or in today's world, like the property we just sold in Miami uh, to a buyer from Boston off of Matterport and video. But nonetheless, people that take time and energy to really understand that asset and then ultimately arrive at five to seven bidders who you know like or love the property and are prepared to compete. A big part of our process is transparency all the way around the equation, whether it's with sellers, buyers or agents. So first of all, for the most part, we all of our auctions take place on our digital platform and they run over a 72 hour period. And so once the auctions open, there's full transparency to anybody interested in bidding about where the bid currently is and what the ask is. And we sell about a third of the properties to people who come in after the bidding's open, after they see where the market is. Starting with that, that makes it really clear, you know, somebody's not going to go through the steps we require them to go through if they're not interested at or above wherever the current bid is. So that's, I think, really important. The second piece certainly is in messaging. Our team on the ground in conjunction with you as a listing agent, it's to say, look, this is a great opportunity, but we're also not here to give away this asset either. And so we tend to, before we take on an assignment, develop a thesis around where do we think bids are going to start for that property? And so we're very transparent with people up front to say, we expect opening bids to be between five and $7 million for this property. Now, if you want to sign up and, and go through the hurdles, if you don't want to start at that threshold, we're not going to exclude you, but you know, we really kind of set those expectations. And that said, one thing that we've learned in the coming up on 12 years of doing this, the best prospect for a given property will emerge. And the most important person in any auction is the second highest bidder, because when the second highest bidder says, I'm done. It's one more bid and the best prospect has it. What we teach our team and our partners and our sellers is you need to build a foundation. To get to a high price, you have to start low and work your way up. And so, you know, there is a fundamental element of building value, starting at, at where people are willing to start and then building up from there. So hopefully that addresses your question. Great. Thanks, Chad. The next one from Klaus is, how do you define luxury or high end from a property point of view? And I'd say from our perspective, we typically don't pinpoint a price point that is high end because that varies in every market, right? A $20 million property in Manhattan is very different than, you know, $20 million property in Georgia, for example. So there are some amazing, you know, high-end luxury homes that are, you know, million, million and a half to two and a half million in some markets. And in others, there, you know, it's a higher threshold. And what we instead think about is the type of client that we work with, what type of property would they want to buy in these various markets? What would be attractive to them? And then also internally, we talk a lot about like what type of property would we want associated with our brand because we are specifically selling, you know, luxury properties. And so to be on 
you know, the homepage or a main marketing piece or something. So it's more about the quality of the property and the amenities and the location that it offers than exactly a price. But very loosely, I would say a lot of people think, you know, million dollar plus when they think of of high end. But again, million dollars doesn't buy you very much in Beverly Hills or Manhattan. Chad, do you have anything else you'd say about that? The only thing else that I would I would add is, you know, when we look at a property to take on, you know, the first question we ask is if, you know, if you adjusted the price, would that sell it? And that threshold, that glass ceiling where a property no longer is trading on a price per square foot, but more about relative value and where it's positioned in a given market. So I think that's also important as well. We say in every market, there's a threshold above which properties are more difficult to monetize because there just is not a very active buyer pool on any given day. And so that that price point of definition of luxury, again, just varies depending on where it is. Okay, so a specific question about the Palm Beach market. So what are our thoughts about what ultra high net worth clients want? And I guess in the Palm Beach market, but maybe just in general. What we found is, is that, you know, there's some people that only want certain types of things, but a lot of our clientele have a regional purview. And I mean, we sold a property in Florida a little over a year ago for close to $60 million to a buyer from our database who had previously purchased in Hawaii some years before, very different style, very different location. The properties couldn't be any more dissimilar other than, you know, it was an affluent client. He and his wife saw something they liked and they bought it. You can't judge a book by the cover in terms of, you know, what affluent buyers, you know, what's, what motivates them. Just like right now, we have a property we're selling in Pennsylvania, has a lot of acreage, and we have way more demand than we thought we were going to have because right now having a lot of acreage and, and room to roam is, a, you know, at a premium. So I think it, it varies. It really depends on the person, right? And their own, are there larger trends? There always are, but we, we preach a lot at Wealth Quotient. It's a market of one and trying to understand each one. So how they made their money will be a, a huge factor in driving their behavior and whether they inherited it, whether it's a trust fund, whether they made it themselves, those will all factor in on the lens they use. I want to confirm what Chad said, which is it really depends on the person and their individual tastes and all the things that, you know, it's a bit of a cop out, I know, but it is true. I started using the term 10 years ago, bespoke marketing, because it means a marketing plan of, for one, customized around one person. Right. I love that. So this is an interesting one with potential food supply chain interruptions. Do we see an uptick of interest in farm and ranch demand? I think that's a logical place to go in terms of just mentally. And so, I mean, we've had more traffic on our website in the last month, correct me if I'm wrong, than we've ever had. So people are looking at real estate right now. And I think that they're looking for a place that's safe, a place that they can have room to enjoy extended time with their family, a place where they aren't feeling like they're putting themselves at unnecessary risk. And so I think that in general, the suburban acreage type properties, things like that are going to benefit from this. And I think it's going to be harder to sell, you know, a condominium in a densely populated urban market for a while. For the last two years, probably, I've been showing slides of what I call the new amenity, which is a Navy SEAL team that comes with a bunker an electric condo that's been built in a nuclear bunker, right? I'm sure you guys have seen 
these articles in the New York Times or the New York Magazine. And so that was happening two years ago, right? So in Silicon Valley, I always ask this question, why is Silicon Valley getting LASIK eye surgery? People respond, they're like, oh, because they're in front of their computer all the time. No, the primary reason that that's a trend is because if there is an apocalypse, they don't want to be hampered by having glasses. And I know a lot of these people, a lot of my friends from Silicon Valley. And so that was happening two years ago. The pandemic's only accelerating. I mean, what I would love to see is has the price on those nuclear bunkers gone up? Probably, right? They have their own gun ranges. They come with training with the Navy SEAL. Those kind of amenities are pretty amazing, right? <laughs> but someone else was just telling me, I was talking to, you know, I'm from, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was talking to somebody. They said that people are buying just land in North Carolina outside of the city in areas. They're just buying up land, maybe even not knowing what they're going to do with it. It's interesting to see that trend. I mean, my investor in WealthX probably five years ago was saying he was going to create his own compound. I think there's always been people who said, I'll create my own compound of self-sufficient farming, et cetera. I think what's happened now is the rest of us who kind of thought that was interesting or strange have now said, that's actually probably a good idea. Okay. So one question comes back to our platform. Chad, would you discuss the issue of setting a reserve versus not setting one? Sure. Be happy to. We have a, a neutral point of view in terms of both auction formats. Both can be effective and we're happy to utilize either approach. What we've learned is for the most part that we use a reserve format, we need to publish that reserve so that the consumer knows where the, the bidding is going to start and against where the asking price is. If you leave that unsaid, you lose a significant percentage of the pipeline of buyers because they may maybe incorrectly, but assume, oh, it's more than I want to spend. And they don't take that first step to get engaged. But ultimately, it really comes down to first looking at the market conditions, right? And so how challenging is the market? But also, you know, are there comps, right? A lot of times we'll be asked to sell a property where there are virtually no comps, certainly in an extended period of time, but maybe never in a given geography. In that scenario, we think you know, setting a reserve may not be the right way to go because it might be too high, it might be too low. And without reserve approach with certain seller safeguards in place to make sure that prior to the commencement of their auction, you know, they're not being asked to jump off a cliff without knowing at least where the bidding is gonna start is a better way to go. The bottom line is we like a, a balance of them. It really comes down to the market conditions, in what it's going to take to bring those three to 500 inquiries, those 25 deep dives, five to seven bidders. The other thing I would say is, and maybe this will be a, a teaser for the upcoming or myths around auctions. Most people think the reserve is what the seller wants to set their floor at. And we think, yes, I mean, technically that's true, but the right way to set a reserve is to say, if I generate or we generate three to 500 buyer inquiries and get 25 people to do a serious look at this property and you get five to seven of them to compete, the reserve should be a number that those people who like that property and can afford it say, of course, I'm interested at that number. I'm ready to compete versus if they have the chance to say, you know what, call us if it doesn't sell, then even a few of them, you lose competition and ultimately hurt the price. Anyways, but we have that conversation, as you can imagine, every day of the year, and it's a good one. And it's one that we should have with you as a seller or a client in earnest. Over to David regarding referrals. If you ask for a referral, how do you follow up without putting too much pressure? And how much do you pay for a referral? Yeah, let me let me tackle the second part of that first. 
in the wealth quotient methodology, when we talk about a referral, we're not talking about using another agent. We're talking about using one of your clients. And so in that case, you would never be, this is someone, and, we, and you have to go through the process. This is one of the steps that we do and that we're offering you guys in the detox, which is who are those people that are referral sources for you? So you would never be paying them. They would be doing it because of the relationship you have with them in managing the social capital that you have with them. No, there would be no referral fee, right? And I understand that uh, with between broker and broker and agent, agent and agent, there's referral fees and how you can share and do those. And, and that's great, right? This is would be separate than that because this would be someone that's your client that you have a relationship with. What was the other part of that, Laura? Another one was if you ask for a referral, how do you follow up without putting too much pressure? The real answer to that begins by identifying the person that you're asking for the referral for, which is why we spend so much time on this step. It's not hard and it's not complicated, but it's so important. If you don't start out with the right people that are giving you the referral, then most of these questions you're asking would be resolved by the fact that from the very beginning, we're picking people that we're pretty close to and we have a relationship with and that will respond to us. And so those type of people, typically, you're going to be able to either follow up because you have a relationship with them um, and you've been able to sit down and kind of review something more transparently, if you will, about the process. So from the very beginning, we're baking in. We're only picking people that we know would respond, not people that we don't know whether they would respond. Right. So going through that process in the beginning, which, again, is something we're doing in the sales detox, figuring out we call them hubs. You can call them whatever you want. Some of our clients call them strategic partners, ambassadors. But picking those people is really important. It's not hard. But most people have never sat down and really gone through the process of looking at all their relational networks, all their clients and saying, who are the right people to build this process around? But if you do, then that question shouldn't pop up later because they're the kind of people you would have picked someone that would have responded from the beginning. Right. What advice would you give for a startup in luxury services space for building a pipeline of new clients in the current economy? In other words, they're saying referrals aren't an option because they're a startup. So where can they start with building a pipeline? You know, the reality is everybody has to start somewhere. And so when we coach people that are just starting out and building a book of business, they have, you have to start with the relationships you have. And what are the relationships you have today? Friends and family. And that's how bankers start. When you're a new banker, they say, go to your friends and family, right? But the opportunity is to pick some relationships and they might even they might even be relationships connected to friends of yours. But the idea is to start to map it out and figure out some some specific people you're going to go to. But you have to start with what you have. And, and there's no way to get around that. And what you have today are family and friends. Right. By starting there, you're already comfortable with those people. It helps you kind of get over the fear of rejection, if you will. It's good training on the right to because then what will happen is at some point you'll get one client. All you need is one. You'll get one client who is well connected and then you'll know exactly what to do with that process. So the answer is you got to start with what you've got and, and what you have today are your, your family and friends and and use that as a stepping stone. Yeah. It also makes me think of starting with other people that are in a similar spot to where you want to be. So other business leaders that right. have have done the same and or have parallel 
industries or offerings to you. So for us at the beginning of our business, you know, founding relationships with the large real estate brokerage networks was important and showing the networks that we can service them and all of their agents and brokers and clients, you know, in a way that's parallel to their brand. And then it opened up, you know, new opportunities for us there and getting to know other business owners that have a like kind service, the same type of client, you know, it's a, you help me, I'll help you kind of thing. And then asking them how they started from the bottom up. We work with a lot of private banks and oftentimes they say, oh, I've got a great hub to do this process with. They're an attorney or an accountant in Houston and they know every family office. And we always say those people are great and you should build relationships, but it's not going to help in this process because those are not public, right? We can't use public data to try to figure out those relational networks. But what you can do is if you've ever referred a client to that accountant and you know that, you can take that person and sit down with them and say, let's go together and look at their networks of who we want to try to get to. And so that's how you can leverage a CO, we call them COI, centers of influence, right? For accounts, attorneys, or other partners, like you said, where the data is not public who they know, but you've referred someone to them. And then it becomes a way to create cross referrals between the both of you, right? And facilitate that. A few more questions. First is, what are your experiences auctioning properties in Italy? And does your approach work for European clients? As Laura mentioned earlier in the discussion, we've been active in 40 states and 29 countries. So we're active real time, you know, all over the world. And Italy has been a fantastic market for us. You know, I love Europe. Wonderful place. I think the traditional way of selling real estate there can be can be very challenging, you know, unlike kind of a structured system here in the US that's kind of powered by an MLS where there may be fierce competition among agents, but there is a common backbone where properties get listed and there's rules of the road that are pretty consistent. In Europe, as many of you know, you know, a seller may list their property with multiple agents at the same time. And there may be different asking prices on the same property across five or six or seven different brokers. You know, our process is refreshingly transparent and efficient as it relates to to that piece. And what we've found in particular in, in Italy, we've sold a number of properties to Chinese buyers from our database and American buyers looking for iconic one-of-a-kind properties. We sold a property called the Villa Pasalacqua for north of 40 million euros. Ultimately, it came down to an American bidder and an Italian bidder. The Italian bidder won the day, but we had you know global interest in that property it was in the Lake Cuomo region. You know, the punchline is while our approach is different from the status quo, it's been very effective. And we have buyers in our database that are really excited about Italian property property, certainly, but you know, throughout Europe, we've been active in Marbella, been active in Switzerland, Spain, Portugal. The UK. I'm sure I'm leaving out some some countries. So, anyways, hopefully that helps. What if you are newish and have only sold one luxury property? This person's in Dallas. How do you build on that with only one under you? This person's definitely in the loop on high end clients, but how do you get them to trust someone who's only sold one? It takes one. To David's point, you know, remind me we were talking about how we built our database one property at a time. We had no database 12 years ago, and today we have over 600,000 contacts, 100,000 weekly subscribers, 10,000 private clients. But one thing you want to make sure of, I used to throw this term around a lot, but we can't have a leaky bucket. 
that means is, is that the people you come in contact with, you need to have a, a scalable system to make sure that you capture their information and are able to improve it over time. It shouldn't be a static thing, but you don't want to lose track of the people you come in contact with. And so I think that's really important. So you need to have the right toolkit and technology. And there's lots of great solutions out there for somebody that's you know in your, your shoes. My advice to somebody would be in that situation is, you know, I'm going to try harder. And you got to convince them that selling their property is more important to you than anybody else they could possibly hire. Another thing you could consider is partnering up with a veteran agent. You have to share some of the pie, but if you've got the relationship and you can combine that with somebody who has the track record, that can be very effective. Our viewpoint is always one successful sale generates two more. If you have that mindset, get the first one into your belt and then, you know, always have that growth mindset, you're going to do great. I would just add that in this is kind of step five in our methodology, which is how do you unlock chemistry and trust? And what, so whenever you're with that client that you already have that one, <laughs> or they're introducing you or you're starting to get social with them or whatnot, I would just have that mentality of always come armed with great questions that are not about, that are really focused on them. In my experience, I think everybody would echo this. When it comes to this market, everyone's pitching them. Everyone's coming at them to donate, to invest, to give. And if you can be the one person in their life that's not asking for anything, but shows real interest, you know, by asking questions, then I guarantee you when, when something changes or someone in their life, a friend who's doing it, they will make that referral because you're implicitly creating trust by being that person who's really interested. And I don't say that again, to be Machiavellian, don't, don't do it just to build the relationship. I think everyone wants to be authentic and serving, but if you do it out of authentically wanting to serve them and build a rapport, I think it's, you know, it's a great strategy and there's nothing better. I mean, there absolutely is no better strategy and it doesn't matter. And this is the exciting part. It doesn't matter if that person's a billionaire or some they're worth half a million. If you ask great questions, both of them, if you get them to talk, that is absolutely the best strategy for building relationships. Agree. So Klaus has two questions. I'll answer the first and then I'll give you the second, Chad. The first one from Klaus is, how do you make sure the bidder has the funds when they're bidding online? Thank you, Klaus. So yes, all of our auctions right, that are conducted online, the bidders go through a vetting process before they're approved to bid. So you actually have to be given access to place your bids by our internal technology team. And so prior to that, all of the bidders have wired funds into escrow. There are three steps actually to bid. The first is you have to wire funds into escrow. An average auction of ours is $100,000 that's wired and it's sent back to you if you don't end up being the high bidder. And then the second thing is you have to acknowledge the terms of the auction. So there's an electronic form that you have to acknowledge. And then the third is that our team vets the financial capability. So most um, registrations require a bank statement or an introduction to a financial advisor or banker so that our team is able to get in contact with that person and either receive a proof of fund statement or have a you know conversation to assure that that person can bid um, as high as they are interested in bidding. We also do have a private client group that are approved to bid consistently on any property that we have at any time. So for clients that are interested in getting involved in our private client group, we can talk through on a one-on-one -on -one basis the process for um, getting approved for that. So the next question from Klaus, Chad, was how much is a seller charged 
And what happens if there are no bidders? So as I mentioned earlier, we asked the seller to retain, if they haven't already retained one, a local listing broker. So the seller is responsible for negotiating that fee arrangement with the local broker. The buyer pays our fee, just like you buy a painting at, at, at Christie's or a watch at Phillips or a car at RM Auction, same way. It's important to note we do not charge any upfront fees. So you know we have invested well above $30 million building our database over the last decade, and sellers are the beneficiaries of that. And even if you wanted to write a check to build a database like that, to David's point earlier, it's not a static database, it's relationships. But we don't charge any upfront fees. We have a full-time marketing team that they're experts in figuring out what's the best way to position an asset and generate the type of interest that they want to interest uh, to develop. It's very unusual for us not to have any bidders for a property. Has that happened at some point in the last decade? Sure. But it's it's highly unlikely. You know, we average anywhere from or see anywhere from three to seven bidders who go through all the hurdles that Laura just mentioned per per auction in advance of the auction. So usually if a property doesn't sell, it's not that we don't have a field of, of buyers willing and able to compete. And it's more a function of the market price or the price discovery that we've identified is just too far out of whack with what the seller can live with. That's more of the norm than not having a, you know, a bidder. Can you include auction properties that need renovation or do they have to be perfect luxury properties? I mean, we, we you name it, we sold it. You know, we sold a property in Atlanta recently for a high net worth seller who was over the construction process. So we had an unfinished house and we sold it to a professional athlete that was happy to buy the property and dial it into their specifications. So, you know, one of the great things about the auction process is any and all buyer diligence is done in advance of the auction. So when we say sold, you know, there aren't any contingencies. There's a pre-prepared purchase and sale contract. Everybody reviews in advance. So really the auctions to, to determine who the winner is and what the price is, but all those other terms are established. It's a great solution for people who have unique assets. You know, getting a contract's great, but getting to the closing table is a whole other thing. Our you know, closing rate from a successful auction to closing table is extraordinarily high. And it's because you know, of the fact that we do the diligence in advance and the rules are if you bid and you're the high bidder, in general, you're you're going to be required to close in 30 days and there will be no contingency. So anyways, really works well for, for properties that fall in the category you mentioned. So what is the most expensive property that concierge has ever sold? I can say that we cannot say <laughs> the most expensive price that the properties have sold for the highest end. We do hold the record for most expensive properties sold in Europe and in the US at auction. And both had previously been listed over $100 million. Each had previously been listed over $100 million. But we're under confidentiality agreements on both of those. But we routinely sell properties in north of $25 million properties have been listed at $100 million. I mean, that's really where our average transaction is about $5.5 million. Mm -hmm. So to give everybody some context, and that's across the globe. But, you know, we certainly do a lot of business in the $25 million and up category. You know, our sell-through rate, which is the percentage of properties that sell, that we take on that sell, is very high in that category. One might think that it's harder to sell those ultra-high-end properties, while finding the buyers for them requires a lot of reach. And horsepower, what we found in that ultra high end is that 
the seller caliber and the buyer caliber is very high. They love our process. They love the speed and the efficiency and the transparency. We're certainly not intimidated by ultra high-end price points. And to the point earlier in the conversation, you know, we have a, we, I think we have the highest resale ever in Dallas, or at least one of around $40 million. And I was talking to a Beverly Hills seller recently with a $100 million plus property. And the reality is a $40 million property in Dallas is probably a $200 million property in Beverly Hills. It's nuanced by market, but we're very comfortable setting records and taking on assignments that there's no um, precedent for. With that said, we also have the question that of what is the lowest price point we'll take on. And for our execution and the effort that we put into every assignment, we typically represent properties that are two and a half million dollars plus, but we do have some sales in the million dollar to two and a half million dollar bracket. And as Chad mentioned, an average of five and a half million. So two and a half to 50 million plus, I guess, is really our sweet spot. I guess when I say two and a half to 20, that's where the majority of our volume falls into. But we do do some on the, the fringe outside of that too. I really love that there's so much engagement here. So some final questions. Someone is asking about how to receive our emails if they can be added to our list. Absolutely. Um, if you'd like to sign up, you can go to our website, conciergeoptions.com. And if you just sign on to the website as a user, you can choose to be added to our auction alert subscription. And then there are a few that are also asking if a recording will be available after the webinar. So yes, as an attendee, you'll receive follow-up emails starting tomorrow. And it will, they will include the link for Wealth Quotient's offer that David was so kind to offer to everyone who's here. Um, and it will also have a link to the podcast of today today's recording. Um, it also will be available next week on the website blocktalknow.com. And we're syndicating to Spotify and Apple. So we're continuing to build um, our block talk repertoire and we'll have everything available at Spotify and Apple. David, we are so thankful to you, yeah, you. one for your friendship and you know professional camaraderie and everything we've been able to learn from you both today and the years that we've known you before now. And thank you for everything you've offered to Everyone who operates in this luxury realm, whether they're some sort of service provider or a recipient of the service, what you've brought to this marketplace is just really phenomenal through WealthX and now Wealth Quotient. 